Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. If the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, it changes everything. But our faith in that event should involve critical thought. All right, happy Resurrection Day, Redemption Church. I am super excited to be with you, and I've had a great week celebrating and thinking on the death and resurrection. And I want to share with you from 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to take a copy of the scriptures that you have, either on your phone, I also have this on the screen uh, as well for you. So those of you that just want to look at the screen, you can do that as well. But the resurrection of Jesus, contrary to what we grew up believing, is the day that changed the world. The day that Jesus walked out of the grave is the day everything changed in all of God's mission, all of God's project, what God is doing in the world, he is now beginning to do. And it is absolutely revolutionary. In fact, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus or you think Jesus was a good example or you thought Jesus was a nice guy. Everything hinges that Jesus walked out of the grave. It changes everything. And if it is really true that he walked out of the grave, then we should do business with what the implications of his resurrection actually are. And as we begin this morning, and I want to read through 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58 with you, but as we go in this morning, I'm going to give you two conclusions that Paul makes about resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is an entire chapter on the resurrection, and I'm just going to go to the concluding parts. Aren't you happy? I'm going to jump right to the end and just tell you the conclusion. But before we get there, I want to make a space, and I want to say this honestly and very solemnly. I want Redemption Church to be a place for doubters, for skeptics, and for Christians who actually question their faith. I want you to feel very comfortable in the sense that maybe you don't believe that Jesus actually walked out of the grave. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, and this is the main reason, that you can't believe that someone actually walked out of the grave. Or maybe you are a follower of Jesus, and you're like Thomas. Doesn't, doesn't Thomas get the bad rap? Do you know that the Bible actually says there are many other disciples who doubted too? <laughs> It wasn't just Thomas. There was many of them. And maybe you're like Thomas and you're just doubting whether or not this is actually true. And what I want to say is I want to encourage those who doubt to doubt your doubts. Okay, that's, what does that mean? If you doubt the resurrection is actually real and historical, I want you to doubt that. And begin to think that maybe it is true. And if you're a Christian, I want you, and you're struggling with your faith, I want you to actually question your faith. Why? Is that good for a pastor to tell you to question your faith? I want to say it's one of the most healthy things we can do. What good is a faith that can't be questioned? What good is a faith that can't be tested? And I know so many people who believe in Jesus because everything is great, and then when some massive trial comes, they just leave. Why? Because... They never had to question their faith. They never had a deep-rooted faith. And this is the essence of Christianity, the resurrection. And it is the thing that we 
to do business with. So 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58. Paul says this, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Why? Because the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you will allow your spirit to permeate our hearts and our minds in this place, that we will actually begin to celebrate the light that is shown into the darkness, the new that has broken into the old, the life that is destroying death. And that's all because Jesus, the perfect, righteous Son of God, came, died, was buried, walked out of the grave, and is now with you. So encourage us, help us to rejoice in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So doubt your doubts and question your faith. Maybe you are struggling with the validity, the truthfulness of the resurrection. Maybe you're a believer. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. But let me say the burden of proof is on both people. The burden of proof isn't just on Christians to prove that Jesus walked out of the grave. The burden of proof is also on those who don't follow Jesus to actually come up with legitimate reasons why there is a religion of 2.2 billion people in the world called Christianity that all believe that Jesus walked out of the grave. You have to have proof or have in your own mind reasons how that came to be. And those who generally reject the resurrection altogether oftentimes follow a scenario something like this, give or take a little bit. But people back in Jesus' day didn't have scientific knowledge about the world. So they were more susceptible to believe in the magic and the supernatural they could have easily fallen prey to the ports of risen Jesus because they believed that resurrections from the dead were possible. Moreover, Jesus' followers were heartbroken over their loss of, the, of their Messiah, so they began to believe that he was still with them in some way or even appeared to them in visions. And over time, these feelings and visions eventually turned into stories that Jesus rose from the dead and the four gospel accounts were written to bolster this account. So those who are trying to do business with why Christianity actually came to be are basically just saying that these people felt really bad. They, um, I don't know if you ever lost a loved one, but lots of people actually report they've actually seen them here and there. You ever heard that before? Um, I haven't exactly had that experience. This was not in my notes. This is going to be an extra five-minute story. But I can remember a time out on the road running, 
and not visibly, but almost visibly seeing Shelly at the end of this spot. And I just booked it as fast as I could, almost died in getting there. And there was nothing there. It was like very strange. So like it's normal for people to actually feel that, maybe think that they saw that. And then this turned into stories, and eventually they wrote a bunch of books to bolster their belief that a man walked out of the tomb. But let me give you a couple reasons why I think it is a valid reason to believe that Jesus actually walked out of the grave. And it has to do with, and there's many lines of evidence that you can go down. This morning I just want to deal with the empty tomb and the witnesses. The empty tomb and the witnesses. If there really was an empty tomb and there really are witnesses, what does that mean? Well, number one, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, earlier on in this chapter, he actually says that Jesus died. How do we know that? He was buried. And that he rose from the dead. And how do we know that? You can read it. He says that he was seen by over 500 people. And he begins to name people, Peter and Simon and James and more than 500 people. He's basically saying this. If you don't believe that this is true, go find Peter. Go find these people. You can actually ask these people. They're still alive. They are witnesses. This isn't one person saw him. This is a massive amount of people began to see him. Number two... What is interesting about the witnesses is not only can you find them, but number two, they were women. Specifically Mark, Matthew does this as well, but we're just going to deal with Mark at the moment. Mark notes that there were three women who were the first people to actually see the risen Lord. In fact, they didn't even know that he was the risen Lord. They were the ones who were at the crucifixion, Mary and Mary who were at the burial, and another individual, another lady was there as well. And why is that so fascinating? Well, okay, don't get mad at me. You ready? This is not me saying this. This is a, a, uh, a Greek philosopher. His name is Celsus, okay? Who actually was very antagonistic towards Christianity. He wrote in his works that Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical. I didn't laugh, you did, okay? Just so we're clear, there was no laughing. But why did he write that? Because women, and you can read Josephus, Josephus, who's also a Jewish historian, he said that women's testimony were not even permissible or admitted in a court of law. So that if a woman came and gave witness, they would just ignore her. And it's interesting that if you wanted to create a story would you create a story where the first people to see Jesus were women? Would you do that if you're trying to create a story? No, why were the women there? Because that probably was actually who the very first people who were there. And it's interesting, as you read in 1 Corinthians 15, which was probably written um, a little bit about 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. It's interesting, Peter, Paul doesn't list any women, does he? He starts listing all men. And so by that time, potentially, even then, the, the veracity of Scripture was based on the authority of men. But it's interesting that all the gospel writers tell you that Mary and the women were the first people to see Jesus. So that one theologian says this, do you see what this means? That if Mark and the Christians were making up these stories to get their movement off the ground, they would have never written women into the story. 
The only possible reason that the presence of women in these accounts is that they were really present and they reported what they saw. The stone had been rolled away, the tomb is empty, and an angel declares to them that Jesus is written. So number one, you can go find people. Number two, the gospel writers actually include women as the first witnesses of Jesus. And then number three, this is just more of a logical one, the fact that there is an empty tomb and there are witnesses. If there is only an empty tomb and there is no one in there, but no one saw Jesus, what would be concluded? Just what the Roman guards concluded. Someone must have came and stole his body. Right? And so they gave him some sleeping potions and knocked him out and pushed the stone and stole his body. But if there are only eyewitnesses and no empty tomb, no one would have believed in the resurrection. So the very fact that there is an empty tomb and witnesses, in a sense you have to do business and it demands that you actually come up with an explanation. And I believe it takes just as much faith to believe that Jesus walked out of the grave as it does he didn't. And the scriptures tell us that he walked out of the grave. So maybe you come in this morning and I'm just asking you, doubt your doubts and question your faith. Because when we look at Christianity, it's not blind faith. It's not just believe whatever and just keep marshalling on. No, Christianity has logic, has validity. There is truthfulness to it. It is very historical. And when you begin to look at what happened in those early days of Christianity, the only, I think, the only logical conclusion you can make is that it must have happened for all of these reasons and more. So with that in mind, we're going to now make two conclusions. The first conclusion comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, where Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Here's my first conclusion. We will be all changed. And what Paul is writing here when he says we will be changed is revolutionary in every sense of the word revolutionary. What Paul describes in this passage is the resurrection of the dead. Okay, and don't get mad at me, but I used to think this was like a rapture verse. Jesus is going to come back and we're all going to be changed. Okay, this doesn't deny the rapture if you believe in it. I'm just saying Paul is talking about resurrection. And when you begin to understand resurrection, what resurrection actually means, this is not talking about that. Paul has just described a whole chapter on what resurrection is, and he's saying now, because of all that, you and I are going to be changed. And so the question is, why does Paul deal the whole chapter on the resurrection? We're very confused about the after. Now, I don't know about you, but I think, again, don't be mad at me. I think most American Christians are confused about the after. This wasn't just a problem in Corinth. I think it's a problem in Chesapeake, Virginia. See, Paul wrote this entire discourse to teach them about what the afterlife actually involves. Our understanding as a culture about the afterlife is what I'm going to call a place called heaven. Okay? I'm, I love the song we sang, but do you remember that little line, heaven is our home? Did you see that line right there? Okay. Part of me just like boils 
Okay? Because this idea that we have as Christians is that the goal of Christianity is to get out of this world, to eradicate ourselves of the evil, to get rid of this evil body, get rid of the sin in our lives, and to go up into a place for all of eternity called heaven. The goal of our afterlife is to get up there. How many of you have heard that before? Is that I mean, a pretty common conception? Of where the afterlife actually goes, what we're looking forward to, where we're actually going to spend all of eternity is up on a cloud, playing a harp, worshiping God forever, wondering if this is going to be an eternal church service like this sermon, knowing that it's still better than what the alternative is, so I'll just sit here and play my harp and be happy. Like, is that the afterlife that God has envisioned for us? And what the resurrection actually tells us is that that is not the afterlife. If you think that's the afterlife, you don't understand biblical resurrection. Resurrection does not involve what we just would call the immortality of the soul. That's what American Christians believe in big talk. We just believe that the soul is going to continue on for existence for all of eternity. But it is not just the immortality of the soul. But you know what is interesting is that the same kind of thoughts we have as American Christians are the same kind of thoughts that were dominating and causing trouble in Corinth. When you look at the Greek worldview, here's going to be five minutes of Greek philosophy. And if you need coffee, just go out there, okay? But just give you a little background into what the Corinthians worldview was like. And there is no, what do we call singular, there's no monolithic understanding of the Greek afterlife. There's different strains of Greek views of the afterlife based on which philosopher or which school you buy into. And I'm not going to deal with all these different issues. I'm just dealing with three of them and what they mean because I think they're very important for us to, deal, to do, uh, understand. The first Greek school of thought is from Homer. Okay, Maybe you've heard of Homer before. But for Homer, he believed that the afterlife was consigned to a disembodied existence, doomed to roam, to roam the underworld Hades. Okay? Now, just think of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Okay? This is all you got to think of. This is what their worldview was, is that you die and you go to a place with no body, you're just some spirit being existing and roaming around for all of eternity in a place called Hades. For Homer and his school of thought, we could say it this way, that death was not a welcome existence. It was not something to look forward to. Another train of thought would be from a philosopher called Epicurus, and his, his is the belief that the body was made up of like particles that disintegrated upon death. And from there, there was no existence. And so that's how some of us in America deal with death. We just believe that we stop, we don't exist anymore, we're done. Or number three, Plato, the Platonists. They believed that the soul was good and the body was evil. Upon death, the soul was liberated and freed from the bondage of this material body and you were then transported as a spirit into a place called Hades. Now for um, Plato... Hades was much more of a positive outlook than it was for Homer and included a place of delight where extended philosophical discussion took place. How many of you are looking forward to that afterlife? 
sitting around the fire. Yes, we got our philosophy major over here who is excited about that. But if I can make some conclusions for Corinth and their worldview, they just swam in all the time. Death was not a welcome existence. Death was welcomed, but not with the hope of life. Death was welcomed as a chance to escape the body. The body was a cage, something that needed to be released from. And this dualism, this, this separation between the spirit and the body, the body being bad, the world being bad, and the spirit being good, the only difference about American Christians is rather than going down to Hades, we go up to heaven. But this is not biblical resurrection. And this is why Paul has to write to the Corinthians to remind them of what resurrection actually is. And in verse 20, you don't have to go there, but just listen, Paul says this, But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, when Jesus walked out of the grave, something unique happens. Jesus' resurrection, you ever thought about this? Why was Jesus' resurrection so different than Lazarus's? We don't worship Lazarus walking out of the grave, right? Why, why was Jesus' resurrection more important than Tabitha's when Peter raised her from the dead? Or why is Jesus' walking out of the grave any more significant than even in the Old Testament when Elijah raised the widow's son? Like, this is not the only time in the Bible that we have resurrection, or that we have people coming back to life. What I want to tell you is that Jesus' resurrection is different than all those other people who came back to life. It's different in scope, kind, and time. And we'll deal with those in just a minute. But look at this, the Jewish worldview. What was Paul in a Jewish understanding of resurrection? In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, I think I have this on the screen for you. Daniel writes this, And those who have fallen asleep in the dust of the earth, those who have died, shall awake... Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the Old Testament predicted a time when everyone was coming back to life. Some for salvation and some for judgment. Ezekiel chapter 37 says this, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I'll cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you will know that I am the Lord. What's the imagery there? Is that your bones are in the ground. And God is going to call those bones out of the ground, and He's going to give you what? A spirit being for all of eternity? Or is He giving you tendons, and muscles, and flesh, and blood, and a body? See, for the Jewish understanding, resurrection was bodily. Resurrection was a physical, corporal body that you could touch. It is not a spirit being floating up in heaven for all eternity. Resurrection is bodily. Number two, they believe that resurrection, and this is, you'll have to trust me if you want more information on this. Number two, not only is it in kind, resurrection was bodily. Number two... Resurrection was something that happened at the end of the world. The timing. When did resurrection happen? According to Daniel chapter 12. At the very end of time. So everyone would die. 
and then God would come back in the person of Jesus, make everything right, and then everyone would come back to life, everyone would experience resurrection, but some for very different purposes. They never believed that resurrection would happen in the middle of the story, in the middle of history. But then the scope, resurrection, they believed happened at the end of time to everyone, not just one person. For Jesus to experience resurrection, like, blew their minds. They were thinking, how could the resurrection occur now? You know, not to keep beating up on Thomas, but, I mean, he had, he had seen Jesus raise Lazarus. He had seen him do all these amazing miracles. Why do you think it was so hard for Thomas to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because of what Jesus was actually claiming. He was actually changing the entire worldview of the Jewish people. Is that not in, only in the future is resurrection going to happen, but now one person is going to come and be resurrected first. That resurrection is going to happen not at the end, but right now. Thomas doubted that Jesus actually had his glorified, resurrected body that was promised for everyone in the future. Resurrection was bodily. Jesus walked out of the grave with his end-time body. The body that's not fit for a spiritual existence in a cloud, but a body that is fit for the new world that is coming. So church, heaven is not the end of the world, nor is it the goal of the Christian life. Christianity is not how we can get up to be with God, it's how God can actually come down to be with us. And this is what the Bible tells us. This isn't just in the New Testament. Isaiah tells us that there's a new world coming where God's people are going to populate it and God is going to dwell with us. And John reiterates the same idea in Revelation chapter 20. And this is why Paul calls Jesus the first fruits. Okay? I'm not a farmer. I'm not the son of a farmer. I don't even have a tomato plant. Okay? Like, I don't understand any of this. I have to read it. But when the first fruits come up and it's a good one, what does that indicate? The rest is coming, right? And it's going to be a good harvest. And what Paul is actually indicating here is that Jesus is the first fruit. I'm going to I'll probably get judged for this even though there's no combination. Jesus is the first tomato. Okay, like he's the very first one to come out. Which is then guaranteed proof that the rest are coming. That you and I are going to follow in the harvest that God has done through the Spirit in walking Jesus out of the grave with a glorified, resurrected body. And Paul reiterates this in Philippians. He says this in Philippians chapter 3. It's on the screen. It says, and we eagerly... No, it's not on the screen. We eagerly await a Savior, Jesus. And notice this. Who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control... He will transform your lowly body to be just like His glorious body. When Jesus comes back, we will all be what, church? Changed. And what are we going to be changed into? The body just like Jesus's. That is fit to inhabit a physical world for all of creation. This is what the resurrection is guaranteeing. This is what the resurrection is securing for God's people. But then there's more than that. There's timing and scope. The resurrection happened in advance, as we said, to one person. 
And he brought that future reality into the presence. The future understanding that resurrection is going to happen at the very end now has happened in the middle of human history. Now that God has brought Jesus here, he is bringing, in a sense, the new world to the presence. When God made the first world, he made the world and then he made the humans, right? As he is embarking on his project to dwell with us, he is doing the exact opposite. He is making the people for that world first, and then he will make the world. So what we believe is that the resurrection of Jesus brought God's new world to us already. We believe that the last days began when Jesus walked out of the grave and now the new world is here. Or as 1 John tells us, the light is dawning and the darkness is going away. So what we see in 1 Corinthians 15 51 is that we will all be changed. And Jesus' resurrection secures that for you and I. Conclusion number two. We're going to go to the last verse, verse 58. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, My brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know your labor is not in vain. Okay, what is causing you to move from the hope of the resurrection? What is causing you to move away and not stand firm in the good news of Jesus? Church, you know, I shared this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Um, I don't know if this is my midlife crisis. I hope it is, so I'm all done with it. All right? And I'm going to buy a motorcycle, Mike. I'm coming soon, okay? All right? Um, even though I don't know how to ride a bike, let alone a motorcycle, okay? You know, like, there are things that just cause us to move away from the hope of the gospel. There are other stories that compete in our minds that cause us to move away from the true story. The story that if I have this, or I get this, or I can accomplish this, or I can start this. You, you walk in your own minds. What are the things that actually cause you to move away? And what Paul is actually saying is that because Jesus walked out of the grave with his glorified resurrected body, don't go anywhere. If he didn't walk out with that body, go anywhere. Do whatever you want. Your faith is empty. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But he's saying that because this happens, there's hope. There's reality that he is going to make everything right and everything that you do in his name and the power of the Spirit is going to matter in the next world. Nate stole my idea in his quote. But this is the point I'm trying to say, is that because the new world is already here, because you walked out of the grave, there is continuity between what is happening right now in your life and continuity that's going to happen in that new world. Everything you do in the name of Jesus is going to be worth it. Now, I've been a pastor for about 2,000 years, and I've tried all sorts of things and I've mucked it up a lot. Right? Like, you ever been there? Like, I keep trying and nothing is working? And the church, you, you know, in some ways, you live in the church and you're like, it's such a mess. 
Yeah, it is such a mess. But you know what? The Spirit of God is still doing things in the church in America. Isn't that weird? And in those things that are being empowered by the Spirit in the name of Jesus actually matter. And I want you to begin thinking through this reality that moms, the way you mother your kids, that matters. Not just to raise them for Jesus, which we should be doing, but to actually raise them for the new world. And that what the work that you're actually doing right now matters in that new world. I wish I could give you the one-to-one -one correspondence, because don't we all want that? Like, if I'm mother really good right now, I'll be a good mother for, I don't know. But what Paul says is that there is such continuity that when we get there, you're going to see the relationship. You're going to understand that everything you did mattered. Nothing was wasted. Nothing you have tried in the name of Jesus will go away. Paul is encouraging the church at Corinth to wrap their mind around what the afterlife is all about. And it's all centered on the hope of Jesus and that he actually walked out of the grave. And because of that, now we can actually have hope and stand firm in who we are and continue in the name of Jesus for the power, through the power of the Spirit, work for the kingdom, work for the new creation. So church, stand firm. Knowing that everything you do will be worth it. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.